Good morning, and thank you, worship team, for ushering into um, today's message, perfect song for today's word. So I want to just begin by sharing with you a little bit about uh, a classmate of mine from high school. So we're going way back. <laughs> um, and I graduated in 1983 from Punahou and have a photograph of one of my classmates here, John Scully. And in high school, I was the, probably the geeky orchestra kid, sewed my own clothes. It was hard to, you know, for my parents, but we made it work. Um, I kept to myself a lot. And then there's classmates that you notice, right, on campus, that they just have a presence about them. And John was one of those kids that he was always laughing, joking around with friends, um, had a good amount of friends, and very athletic, very tall like over six feet. And so from a distance, you know, I would observe him. And in my mind, um, you know, I'd probably given him this label of, okay, not really approachable, probably for me, um, athletic, popular, hmm, yeah. A little judgmental of me. I didn't know Jesus then, so <laughs> a little grace, right? But that was my, my thought about him. And then fast forward, everybody graduates, goes to college, and in fact, John ended up going to law school, I believe at University of San Francisco Law School. And he actually did quite well, securing a job at a law firm in San Francisco, a prestigious law firm. He had, just, he had a beautiful life um, in 1993, nine months before he had married his wife, and she actually was studying to take the bar as he worked at this firm. And that, this one day in 1993, she had gone down to the firm to study for the bar, and John had shown her to an office there, an empty office, and said she could study until he was done with work. And that's what she did. Well, who knew on this one uneventful day, July 1st, 1993, when everyone's working, a 48-year-old disgruntled and broken man named Jan Luigi Ferry would enter this 48-story massive office building, stop on the floor of this law firm, and begin to take his revenge, shooting as he walked through the office, shooting at whoever he could. He was armed with two 9-millimeter weapons, a 45 caliber semi-automatic, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. These were guns that were illegally obtained with a fake permit. So he began in the conference room when he walked in. There was a deposition going on. Innocent people shot two attorneys, a court reporter, and the witness that was there for the, the deposition. And then he made his way down the hall. And as the gunshots rang out, John raced to this office with his wife, who was studying, and said, we have to go. We have to get out of here. And so he pulled her, and as they went down the hall, they see him right in front of them. And so they run the other way into an office, and they try to lock the door, but there's no lock. And they try to push a file cabinet against the door so he can't come in, but they can't move it. And in, within minutes, he is in this office, and he shoots. And what John did was he stepped in front of his wife to cover her as this gunman shot six bullets into John 
And as John lay bleeding, mortally wounded, he continued to try to help his wife, telling her to call for help, and also telling her, I'm sorry, I'm dying. And so Michelle survived this ordeal, but nine people in that law firm did not that day, including Ferry, who took his own life at the scene. This is known as the 101 California shooting. It was the worst shooting rampage in California until most recently, I believe, in San Jose in 2018. Um, we know way too many shooting rampages happen every day now. After Michelle took some time to heal from her physical wounds, because she had also taken some bullets, and the devastating loss of her husband, she made it her mission to become an active advocate in increasing national public awareness about the need for tighter gun laws, and ultimately was instrumental in helping to spark real legislative change in California and across the nation. After the shooting, California implemented some of the toughest gun laws in the United States. The shooting, um, it resulted in tighter security measures at um, offices and buildings when you enter, and helped repeal a law that had given gun manufacturers immunity against lawsuits. Organizations were founded to prevent gun violence. Friends, this is not a story that I'm telling you about whether or not you or I support the right to bear arms or about your position on guns. The focus here is about John Scully's sacrifice of life to protect out of his love for his wife, Michelle, and the underlying good that came from John choosing this woman who didn't want to just be a victim of a heinous act but wanted a greater good to come out of John's death and so many of the others that died that day. This is what true sacrifice looks like. We are continuing our sermon series, Cruciformed, based upon the book of theologian Fleming Rutledge. Her book is called The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. And while many of us, myself included, I'd love to remain a little bit more at the surface, sharing how Christ came and Christ's love, how he lived among us and went to his death on the cross so that we, could, we would be forgiven and we would be saved, that we would share eternal life with our Father in heaven. While it's, while it's much more comfortable for me to sit in the beauty of the cross, I am being stretched and shaken to go deeper into what the cross really means in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And last week, Pastor Yumiko preached on Passover and another theme from the Old Testament that helps us to interpret Jesus' death. Today, we focus on the blood sacrifice from a cross-formed perspective. Fleming Rutledge says Jesus' death interpreted as a sacrifice and specifically a sacrifice for sin is one of the dominant ideas of the New Testament. So before I go on, can I ask somebody if I could have a cup of water? Because I feel like I have a tickle in my throat, so. Okay, so our scripture passage today comes from 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, and I'm reading through the NIV version. 
before you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, Thank you. but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Now, it's my hope that by laying out the why behind the blood sacrifice, that you will come to a cross-form perspective on what a godly sacrifice looks like and want to live into that. To sum up this verse from the Apostle Peter, he comes at it from a perspective of acknowledging people, you, me, all people, as slaves to sin. We fall victim and we make choices every day in our quest for fulfillment and meaning. We're often misguided in thinking that the latest and the greatest, the trendiest, the most expensive, the instant gratification, anything minus Christ as a way for our lives to be complete and possibly find happiness. But nothing, nothing but Jesus' death on the cross, nothing but the blood of Jesus could ever redeem us to rightness with him. There is no greater price, no greater act, no greater love than when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for us, when he did nothing to deserve being there. So, I wonder why Jesus' death is highlighted as Jesus' blood. Why not always refer to it as Jesus' death? In communion, we take the bread, the body of Christ, broken on the cross for us, and the cup, the blood of Christ, shed for us on the cross. And this is called a, it's a fancy word, metonymy, M-E-T-O-N-Y-M-Y, for any linguists out there. Um, it's a big word. It's when you give a name to an attribute for uh, a thing that we're talking about, so the cup represents the blood of Jesus, the juice, the wine. It symbolizes the covenant of his blood. And interestingly, the New Testament references the blood of Jesus three times more than references to the death of Christ. So that says something, doesn't it? So why the blood of Jesus? What does the blood mean? Does it represent life or death? What do you think? After all, doesn't blood give life? And lack of it means death. I think, in this case, it's rather paradoxical. But let's explore this together, shall we? I want to qualify, too, by saying that what is preached today is really just a small, small portion of this topic of blood sacrifice. Theologians, theories, and time past have rendered the subject of Jesus' blood a vast forum for differing viewpoints. The theme of blood sacrifice dominates in scripture and is applied to other atonement motives 
like representation, substitution, propitiation, vicarious suffering, and exchange, none of which we're going to delve into today. Too much for today. Those of you who know me well know that I'll unpack the essential elements so as not to confuse you, but to encourage and equip and empower you in growing closer in understanding your relationship to Jesus, who he is, what he did. When we talk about Jesus' blood, there is death as his blood pours out. But Jesus' death really wasn't from bleeding out. Likely it was something like a heart attack from his body being so overwrought with being beaten and battered and hung on the cross, a slow suffocation, uh, being dehydrated, his organs shutting down. However, the symbolism of blood, that goes far back to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is found, it's the third book in the Old Testament, and it takes place, setting is after the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt. And they've entered into this covenant relationship with God, but have already rebelled and broken the rules. So much so that Moses, their leader, he couldn't enter into the tent that they had to be in the presence of the Holy One, the presence of God. God could call to him from within, but Moses couldn't enter because of this rift that was caused by their sin. The book of Leviticus is about how God graciously provides a way for the sinful and the corrupt to live in his holy presence. The book of Leviticus is full of elaborate prescriptions and rituals, things that you and I today would probably maybe laugh at or scoff at a little bit. Far too many rituals to mention. But back then, they meant something as people living in alien territory. As the Israelites sojourned through Canaan, Babylon, the Roman Empire, they instilled practices that made sense to them because they had to remain in this so-called alien territory until the time would finally come for them to be with their heavenly God. Leviticus actually plants a seed of loving others outside of your circle because just as the Israelites were natives in a foreign land like Egypt, so it was with people of other cultures that occupied the land. So as the people waited for the incarnate Jesus to come as their sacrificial lamb, something, some ritual, needed to fill the gap between man's sinfulness and God's holiness. Now let me say something about God's holiness, another big, right, big broad topic and word. God's proclamation calls us to holiness. And the word holiness, just um, for those of you that are interested in breaking it down, in both Hebrew and in Greek, it means, it translates to sacred or saint, or sanctification. Its meaning is to be set apart or to be distinct from so that people can honor and glorify Israel's God and not a God of the pagan culture. Our God is a crucified, risen God 
unique in all the world. So waiting for the true sacrificial lamb back in the Old Testament meant there had to be some way on a regular basis to address repeated and prevalent sin, a way of atoning for sins of the people, whether in Israel or not. Thus, a sacrificial animal, usually a goat or a bull, was offered to cover the sin of the person because sin had to cost something. And to have animals was expensive. It meant something. While the life of the animal would be given and offered, it was really the blood of the animal that signified that sins were forgiven. Blood in exchange for peace. So, why couldn't we just keep sacrificing animals rather than Jesus? Well, it wasn't the plan. And this is important. Jesus' death, it was not plan B because plan A didn't really cut it. Jesus' death, Jesus' blood, was always part of the original plan. Fleming Rutledge calls it God's movement within God's very being to offer God's self sacrificially. When it came time for Jesus, a man without sin, to become sin, the blood of Christ was necessary to secure our release from sin, having followed the rationale of Leviticus. Jesus' blood and only Jesus' blood could cover our individual sins. But also the vastness of corporate sin, of movements, of mindsets, of theories, hatred, exclusion, injustice, and other horrific outcomes that have arisen when our sin becomes our idols and we forget or we turn away from the cross of Jesus. No possession or person other than Jesus could be enough sacrifice and atonement for the atrocities we and those before us and with us and after us commit. So does the blood of Christ represent a sacrifice of life or death? Can we agree that the blood of Jesus is a sacrifice of life for death, life of forgiveness, and salvation, death of sin. In your sermon notes today, the first point that I have is the blood of Christ symbolizes pure sacrificial love. Pure sacrificial love. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, for the life of the body is in its blood, I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. The early Christians had no New Testament, yet they were being prepared for the Messiah to come and teach true and pure sacrificial love. So understanding why we needed the blood of Jesus at the cross, how does that help us today? 
What do we do with that, other than knowing that in communion we are given an opportunity, at least once a month here at Wellspring, to remember Christ's sacrificial love by taking his cup, symbolic of the blood? How do we do pure, sacrificial love today? And that takes us to point two of your sermon notes. That pure sacrifice takes on the ungodly in godly ways. Pure sacrifice takes on the ungodly in godly ways. And I have in your notes in parentheses, unrighteous and righteous for those of you who um, maybe want you know, a little more clarity. So in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul reminds us, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good one, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ sacrificed. What does good and healthy sacrifice look like? I would say good sacrifice is when something of value really important is relinquished. And the purpose is to gain greater good. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb going to the cross. His life would be relinquished, but he allows himself to be a sacrifice that is effective for the whole human race for all eternity for the whole human race, for the godly, the ungodly, believers and non-believers. That message was communicated in Leviticus when the Israelites were reminded that they are all aliens living in a foreign place, but as followers of God, you are cloaked with servanthood to God and to others. Ugh. Really? That's tough sometimes, isn't it? But remember, God came to rescue all. You and I, we become helpers of this mission, lifelong sacrificers in pursuit of God's mission. And while he is for you, he knows our limits as sinners, which is why we come back to the importance of the blood of Jesus in communion. Know that once the blood of Jesus was given by his death on the cross, we were set free from slavery of sin. Jesus, blameless and unblemished, took our place when he went to the cross. The New Testament book of Hebrews goes on to argue that Christ's death was a blood sacrifice offered for sin where the high priest Jesus and the victim become one. Remember I said Jesus' death on the cross was paradoxical because the righteous died for the unrighteous. Death in exchange for new life. In 1 Peter 3 verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 
When I talk about the ungodly, now this can refer not only to individuals who are doing or not doing things in a manner or way that would be Jesus' way. It can also be attitudes that we have that are self-serving, that our westernized society has adopted, that are unhealthy, unethical, and immoral. Without letting fear overtake us and knowing your safe place, your safe place is belonging to Jesus, we do face some radical evil in our world. It is nothing new. Since the 1993 shooting in San Francisco, we've seen, right, mass shootings in schools, in shopping malls. There are hate crimes going on all over the world, and nowhere seems safe anymore. Given the gravity of sin, the weight of injustice, Christ's blood shed to overcome sin and death, it corresponds to the annihilating power of sin and death. There was no other way but God's original plan. There was no other way but Jesus. It's important to note we address the ungodly and unrighteous in a manner that is godly and righteous. Thus, we can shift our perspective and look at sacrifice not as us being weak, but shifting instead as us having power. Less depression and oppression, more empowerment. And what does empowered sacrifice look like? It is such a gray area when we talk about mom or dad who's working long hours, maybe several jobs, sacrificing time with their family so that they can pay rent or put food on the table? Or what about the person who jumps into the water to save someone that is drowning only to lose their own life? How about sticking with tough relationships? Please hear this. It's never okay to inflict or to be a victim of physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Remember what is pure and true sacrificial love is also healthy physically, emotionally, and spiritually for the giver and the receiver of the sacrifice. We can only give from a place of God's heart and God's pureness at our best. And that is why it's so important that we do the work, the hard work in ourselves too. How that is interpreted or received, that is out of our control. That is why when we make choices that involve sacrifice, it is critical, right? That we are always seeking and responding to the voice and the lead of the Holy Spirit critical. We're always seeking and responding to the voice and the lead of the Holy Spirit. At the cross in Jesus' weakness and sacrificial surrendering of life, there is power as sin and death are overcome. Jesus' most powerful weapon for destroying that which is ungodly is love. Love through grace, 
love through mercy, that is love. You and I can go confidently now into the sanctuary or into the tent because of and by the blood of Jesus. What's beautiful too is that this pure sacrificial love can come in the biggest or the smallest of packages. For me, it was this extra 30 minutes at our staff meeting that, so that I could share my heart about the ongoing struggle of striving and even letting go of a really healthy relationship with my 95-year-old earthly father. For some, it could be the gift of stopping to give your lunch to the guy that is standing at the street corner, hungry, and you know that if you give up that lunch, hmm, you probably aren't going to have lunch yourself that day, right? But he'll be fed. Or a prayer that you and I say for someone else that is suffering, or even someone else that has wronged us. Even when we really don't know what to say, or how to pray, or want to pray, the courage that it takes to pray is a sacrifice for something good so that God can work. The courage to speak truth and kindness when you know it will help someone become a better person, even if it means a rub of discomfort in your relationship. When John Scully threw himself in the path of gunfire to shield his wife, he was sacrificing out of love, life for death. When his wife, Michelle, joined a crusade for stricter gun control laws, she was, in, she was confronting increasing gun violence with righteous anger to save innocent lives. This week, I offer these reflection questions for you to pray and ponder over. And if you're in a small group, I invite you to discuss these with one another. The first question is, remember a time when you or someone you know chose to make a significant sacrifice for someone or something. What was the cost? And what was the gain? And in what ways was God present in this sacrifice? And the second question is, how are you feeling challenged or encouraged, knowing the blood of Jesus, was sacrificed for the godly and the ungodly. I chose um, at this quote by Fleming Rutledge to close with. Um, I've read it so many times because it's, it is so profoundly powerful. It bears repeating and reflection on why godly sacrifice is true power. This should be our lifestyle vision. Such a life, rightly understood, is uniquely empowering because it is aligned with the self-giving God in Jesus Christ. Wherever there are gracious acts of unselfishness, there are signs of God's kingdom of remade relationships based on mutual self-offering. Even in this old world ruled by sin and death, who would want to live a life of utter selfishness? To show any kind of care for others at all, some sort of sacrifice is necessary every day to be monogamous 
anonymous, sorry, <laughs> instead of vindictive, to stand back and let someone else share the limelight, to absorb the anger of a teenager in order to show firm guidance, to be patient with a parent who has Alzheimer's, to refrain from undermining a colleague, to give away money one would like to spend on luxuries, to give up smoking, to bear with those who can't give up smoking. All such things, large and small, require sacrifice. What would life be like without it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we are grateful. We're grateful knowing that we're so undeserving, but yet you saw so much more in each one of us. And through your love, through your death on the cross, through the shedding of your blood, Lord, you assure us of promises, promises of forgiveness, of acceptance, of salvation, of always walking with us, no matter what. Lord, I know that this morning some of us, we may not have had that opportunity to ask you into our hearts, Lord, to make that commitment. And so right now I just ask if there is anyone, whether it's here in the sanctuary or watching us on live stream. Father, I pray that if there's someone that just feels that tug, that is an invitation. I just want you to know that's an invitation for God, from God to you personally. And so just quietly say these words, dear Jesus, I know that you died on this cross for my sins. I know I'm a sinner. But I ask you into my heart, I want to serve you. I want to be part of your family. Lord, I receive you today. Father, help us that when we look at the cross, yes, we see the beauty, but Lord, we also remember the blood of Jesus, that for your life there was death, but there was also new life from that death. Help us to want to live into being servants of pure sacrificial love because that's what you gave us. You gave undeserved love to us in the most godly, the most loving way. There's no greater sacrifice than you. We proclaim that. There's no greater love that was ever shown. We shout out that proclamation, Lord, and we thank you, Lord, for being our sacrificial lamb, knowing the cost, knowing the priceless gift. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. <laughs>